Hi, I'm Scott Goldfine. Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. Brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Whether you're watching our video uh, broadcast or listening to the audio podcast version, I thank you as always very much for your continued interest and support. Today I'm thrilled to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership a true giant of modern music, trumpeter and composer Randy Brecker, who for more than 50 years has been one of the most active and recorded horn players of all time. From releasing his first soul album in 1968 to recording six albums from 1975 to 1981 with his sax-playing sibling, Michael, as the acclaimed Brecker brothers, to collaborating with greats, including Horace Silver, George Benson, Bob James, Idris Muhammad, Jaco Pastorius, Ron Carter, Billy Cobham, Lonnie Smith, Alphonse Muzan, Stanley Turntine, Grover Washington, Lenny White, Dennis Chambers, Chick Corea, and Spyro Gyro, Randy Brecker has carved out an amazing jazz infusion legacy. But that is only part of the story, as he has also been involved with myriad R&B, funk, rock, and pop projects. Those include Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Lou Reed, Aerosmith, George Clinton, and Parliament, Bootsy's Rubber Band, Dire Straits, Stevie Wonder, Johnny Winter, Average White Band, Bruce Springsteen, Elton John, Shaka Khan, Carly Sima, Simon, Breakwater, Clear, Steely Dan, Aretha Franklin, Sheik, Frank Sinatra, Bette Midler, Robert Palmer, Todd Rundgren, Bill Withers, Jay Giles Band, James Taylor, Paul Simon, Diana Ross, Joe Cocker, B.B. King, Eric Clapton, Frank Zappa, Liza Minnelli, Yoko Ono, James Brown, and the Spinners. In short, his contributions to contemporary music are staggering. Randy, how are you? Well, it sounds like you're talking about somebody else, but I'm fine. <laughs> I, man, I got to tell you, you know, I always look at my guests' list of credits, and a lot of times it's pretty impressive if they've got maybe 10 or 20. Yours is like a phone book. <laughs> that it is. Uh, like I said, it always uh, when I hear it back, it always sounds like, Whoever it is is talking about somebody else. It's almost like a, it's another being. But it's been a lot of fun, and I'm happy that I'm still here and still uh, doing something. Oh, man, I'm so glad you're here, too. Thank you for joining me. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I've, uh, so I've watched some of the uh, interviews, and that's very well done. I've really enjoyed the site. Well, thank you. You know, I've had some of your colleagues on, too. Hopefully you've noticed. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good to finally have the man on. And, uh, you know, my for me personally, I mostly got exposed to it first through seeing you on records I was listening to by other acts. And then that helped me get interested, you know, in the Brecker Brothers. Sure. Yeah. Um, I was always like, wow, those horns are kicking. Who is that? Brecker, 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 you know? <laughs> so. Well, Brecker Brothers came a little... Uh... Later, we started getting busy in the studios, I'd say about uh, five or six years before we kind of regrouped as Brecker Brothers. So it was a, uh, a long, slow climb, as they say. Yeah, well, you were certainly ready by then. But uh, before we get into that, where are you coming to us from today? Well, we live out in East Hampton, and I'm in my uh, studio in our basement where we still do a lot of recording for people via Pro Tools and file sharing. So uh, uh, it's very comfortable down here, and I 
usually I'm down here until two or three in the morning practicing after the recording's done. Got my horn right here and uh, other horns. So it's uh, been great. The move since we moved from New York, it's been actually great for me that I can stay up late and blessed. Uh, we lived, we've had this house for a long time, but I lived basically in Midtown, so it was hard to practice after a certain hour. So this is great for me. And of course, you're from Philly originally. But right. how long? When did you move? How long did you live in New York? And well, I moved uh, from Philly actually to Indiana University for three and a half years. Uh, we went on a uh, State Department tour in February of 1966, I think it was. So I have to look at my uh, backstory. And we were in the Middle East and Asia for four months with the Indiana University Jazz Ensemble, after which I traveled to Vienna and participated in, a, I'm, I'm getting around to when I moved, uh, in, uh, into a, 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 a contest. It was the only year it was held, the uh, first international jazz competition. And after that, I stayed in Europe that summer and moved to New York and went to NYU studying music and liberal arts uh, in September of 66 and got slowly sucked into doing a lot of studio work and local gigs. There was a lot of work back then. And at these competitions, I had met one of the judges was Mel Lewis, who was one of the judges in Vienna. And Clark Turry, who was a judge at the Notre Dame Jazz Festival when we won it that year and were awarded the State Department tour. So Clark Turry gave me a trumpet award. And they were nice enough to call when they found out that I had moved to New York and I joined both of their big bands. And uh, I had it pretty easy. I have to say there was a lot of work. It was kind of a novelty that a young guy was in town who could uh, kind of play, as at least they thought I could play. And... Uh, Slowly but surely, I, I started to work pretty steadily. That's a long answer. Thank you. Now, for those who don't know, I mean, obviously, you had a musical household with your brother, but also your father was very much into music. And can you just state briefly, you know, what impact that had on shaping you, you know, uh, to pursue music? Well, we were kind of just born into it. I always tell the story how my father, when I was two weeks old, who was a wonderful pianist and singer and songwriter in his own right, a lawyer by trade. His parents were immigrants and he was worried about making a living in the music business, but he was really a musician. First, when I was uh, two weeks old, he wrote a tune for me called The Hottest Man in Town and kind of forecast the future where I, as he said in the lyrics, I'd play, uh, play a horn, maybe a hot fife and love music even more than my wife called the hottest man in town and he just uh i was just born into it i think i was a musician from the day i came out he was uh like i said a wonderful player actually recorded that tune uh him record he recorded the tune re-recorded it because the original was so uh scratchy when i i, I did a record that eventually won a grammy called into the sun in 1997 Dad came to New York, recorded The Hottest Man in Town at a one take at a piano and split. And I put it on uh, this record as kind of part of a suite. So he was undeniably for both of us and my sister, who's a wonderful musician in her own right. We just grew up with music, jazz, uh, jam sessions at the house. 
with great local Philly musicians. And it was just a big part of our life. We were kind of forecast to be musicians, I think, both of us. Although Mike started and got did get serious about it later than I did. I always kind of knew what I wanted to do. Wow. So, of course, you were a few years older than Michael, right? So um, were you able to uh, play much in your younger years, in your teen years together, or were you kind of off in your own thing and he was doing his own thing? Well, that's a good question. We did play a little. He was three years younger. I started trumpet officially when I was eight eight years old, uh, and he officially started clarinet when he was eight years old. They only had trumpets or clarinets available in our little suburban grade school. He didn't want to play the same instrument as I did. So as he put it, he kind of got stuck with the clarinet, never kind of took to the instrument. But we both studied for years with members of the Philadelphia Orchestra, me with Sigmund Herring, great trumpet player, and he with a guy named Leon Lester, who was a clarinetist in the Philadelphia Orchestra. So Mike got a good uh, background in woodwinds. Uh, from what I told, it's, uh, it's great that he did start on clarinet because it gave him a lot of facility. He was quite good at it. And I always tell this story uh, when I think of it. It was a facetious comment, but uh, years later we were playing with Buddy DeFranco at the Buddy DeFranco Jazz Festival one of the last gigs we did together, and Buddy was just wailing away, sounding great. And Mike whispered in my ear, you know, I still hate the clarinet. <laughs> Kidding, of course, because Buddy was one of the greatest. But uh, in ninth grade, he discovered, uh, like I said, he was a little later starting. Seriously, he had other interests, basketball. He liked his chemistry set. But in ninth grade, he switched to alto saxophone and got heavily interested in uh, Cannonball. And uh, when he started to listen to Coltrane, that was it for him. He switched to tenor in 10th grade. But by then, I was already off at school. So in answer to your question, we played some as kids. When he was playing clarinet, we'd get together in our bathroom because we liked the echo. And we'd just kind of freely improvise. But we didn't really seriously get together till we were both uh, pretty well-formed musicians. In fact, uh, I heard him in a jam session. This was probably in the summer of 1968. I was playing with Horace Silver at the Plug Nickel. And by then, Mike had gone to Indiana University and had started a band with the great trumpet player Randy, Randy Sankey. Uh, they had a band called Mrs. Seaman Sound Band. And their uh, most famous legacy was being disqualified at the uh, Notre Dame Jazz Festival for playing jazz rock. Uh, Oliver Nelson and Ray Brown didn't like that idea, although they were far and away the best band at that festival. They got disqualified and made the headlines and downbeat. You know, finalists disqualified for playing jazz rock. But, yeah. But uh, that summer, he, he was staying up the street from the Plug Nickel, and I brought uh, with his band. They were working around Chicago. And I uh, brought Benny Maupin and Billy Cobham over to his crash pad where the band was uh, staying. And we had a jam session. And that was really the first time any of us had heard him. And boy, he just blew our socks off. He was already kind of a diamond in the rough. Uh, but he had already kind of uh, combined the influence of Train and Junior Walker and 
and King Curtis, the 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 nucleus of Michael Brecker was already well established in his playing. So uh, uh, the next thing I did was fly him to New York. Uh, when I did that first record score uh, in uh, 1968, he, Mike was 19, I was uh, 21, and imagine that he played on the record his first gig in New York. He's playing with all these great players on his first record date. And you can kind of hear where he was at at that time, which was uh, quite interesting when you go back to that record. And then from then on, eventually he moved to New York, and of course we played together for the rest of our lives. How did you come to the attention of Horace Silver? Well, I uh, he held auditions. And if I'm not wrong, uh, I would assume it's more than an assumption. Woody Shaw recommended me. He had uh, Charles Tolliver in the band at the time. I auditioned, and I think Charles Tolliver actually got the gig, but Charles was uh, floating between Max Roach Quartet and Quintet and Horace's band, and Horace didn't like that idea. So I, I got a call, and he asked me to join the band after I auditioned. And I was, of course, thrilled to do it. I was playing in Blood, Sweat, and Tears at the time, and uh, they begged me to stay on because they were finding a new lead singer named David Clayton Thomas, and they were going to do their second record. I had performed on their first record, Child is Father to the Man, which did quite well, but uh, they wanted to add a lead singer. And the leader of the band, who was Al Cooper, who wrote most of the stuff and on the first record sang most of the tunes and was really spiritually the leader, although it was a partnership, quit when he found the rest of the guys had ganged up on him and we had had a band meeting and said that uh, when they told him that they wanted to add a lead singer and he left and I, I chose that moment to uh, explain that I had been called by Horace Silver and I wanted to as much as I liked playing in the band which I did it was steady work I uh, didn't get to actually improvise that much so I said I don't think you guys will ever make it without Al and I left. I said, I'm, I'm going to join Horace Silver. And of course, they went on to uh, do their second record and sold 11 million copies and was number one for about a year. It was one of the highest selling records in history. But it all worked out well in the end. You were a spinning wheel. That's right. <laughs> we, actually, we actually got together for years after that uh, without Cooper when everything had broken up and uh, we played one gig a year at the bottom line till about 1995 we did about 10 years in a row and one year we got snowed out without cooper and the original members and some of the other guys lou soloff and i were the trumpet players it was a lot of fun to play just just the music from the first record and we would end the set this was my idea with and that was the end of the set the intro to uh spinning wheel so that was always a lot of fun to do and i still have connections with a lot of those guys oh, that's great um so early on randy what horn players did you aspire to well dad loved trumpet players i have to say and i was from philadelphia clifford brown when i was uh was sadly killed when i was 10 years old but previous to that he was the talk of the town. That was really their home base, Max Roach and and, uh, and uh, 
Clifford played at uh, the local clubs regularly, so he was the talk of the town. Dad had all his records and would just uh, rhapsodize over his playing. I remember once he grabbed me and said, Randy Trumpet's the greatest jazz instrument. I was probably about six years old, and that had a big impression. So I think Clifford probably was number one in my intake as a youngster because he was on the scene so much, but also all the guys, you know, Dad had a pretty extensive record collection, a lot of Miles Davis. He loved Chet Baker. Uh, later, uh, there was a, a trumpet player who I'd love to mention. He's still with us, named Bobby Mojica, who's uh, made a living as a trumpet player in Detroit. Great player. He was coming over the house a lot, and I, I had his sound in my head because he was such an outstanding player. I'm still in touch with him. He's probably 86 or 87 and still working in Detroit, had a some kind of business too, but he recently gave me a cassette of his playing. And it's remarkable how similar we are. And he being older, I think a lot of his playing rubbed off on me as a kid. That, Like I said, his name is Bobby Mojica, just a great jazz player. But Miles Davis later... Uh, Lee Morgan, Freddie Hubbard. Lee is also from Philly. We had the same trumpet teacher, a guy named Tony Marcion, whose son Nick is uh, first call trumpet player in New York City now for all the gigs. Tony was fantastic uh, teacher and classical trumpet player, but he also taught Lee. Uh, so we had that in common. And uh, I remember hearing Lee for the first time on, on record when I was studying with Tony later. And Tony had a way of developing my sound, I think, that uh, still is with me. So those are a few. Later, Kenny Durham, Thad Jones were, are great. Uh, um, leave it out a, a lot of a few. Uh, uh, I love the West Coast players, a lot of those guys. Don Baggerquist, uh, Blue Mitchell, of course. I could just go on and on. My, I listen a lot, so I got around to just about everybody and transcribed a lot of stuff and still spent hours listening to players. And how much was your dad able to see your and your brother's success? Uh, I'm happy to say he saw quite a bit of it. Uh, he passed away uh, uh, close to being 80 years old. I think he was uh, didn't quite make 80, but we had already had success at the Brecker Brothers, and we had opened our club 7th avenue south and he was a regular he loved to come up with my mother and just meet everyone and stride up to everyone and say you know i'm the brecker brother's father so i say dad kind of cool it don't go up to i remember once he went up to uh oscar peterson i said dad don't he's not the kind of guy you want to go up and say that to but he went up to him anyway <laughs> in montreux so but he was a great guy as uh, was my mother who was a wonderful portrait artist uh and uh, an artist in that way in her own right. So I come from really kind of a creative background. It was pretty close-knit family. That's great. I'm glad he was able to enjoy that and for you guys too. That's great. Yeah, he was thrilled. You know, we always got mixed messages from him because he uh, had a so-called day job and he was just worried that, uh, you know, we could make ends meet. But uh like I said, there was a lot of work back then. It's a little harder now to keep things going the way the music business turned out. But uh, he caught the best part of it, that's for sure. Well, talk to me a little bit about that now, Randy. So 
the years, the early 70s, before the Brecker Brothers got launched and you guys were cutting your teeth on like so many sessions. And um, What was that life like for you? And what attributes do you believe that you had that made you so in demand for sessions? Well, another good question. I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that growing up in Philly was literally a uh, potpourri of different styles coexisting at the same time. And I would go out and hear a lot of music and eventually played in a lot of jazz bands, a lot of R&B bands, blues bands. Of course, I'd go hear the Philadelphia Orchestra since our teachers were there. It was just every kind of music at your fingertips. There were two great jazz clubs, Peps and the Showboat, where I, Dad would take me. There was also a place called the uh, Red Hill Inn where I'd go hear Miles, Cannonball. Never quite heard Train because he never seemed to show up and Miles was there. But great singers, Sarah Vaughan, Dave Brubeck uh, was around a lot. He was Dad was a big fan of his. But I also played in a lot of uh, local, like I said, blues bands and heard a lot of music on the radio. There was a good jazz station. Right next to the jazz station was the R&B station. And the first time I heard little Stevie Wonder, who was 12 years old at the time, and James Brown, I just flipped out. I, hadn't, I, was, I was a jazzer. I wasn't aware of all this other stuff. But I was still young enough to... Uh, ingest that too and i i uh like to ingest as much as far as different styles of music as i could because it was around in philly was the birthplace as you might remember i should say that of american bandstand where dick clark would play uh a lot of r&b records and have a lot of african-american uh, groups on the show so i was pretty well versed in a lot of different facets of music by the time i got to new york and it was kind of a natural thing because I grew up with it. I wasn't strictly a, a jazzer, so to speak. And I think that lent them, it, itself to uh, me starting to get called for a lot of different sessions. Uh, and and par I guess I was partially responsible since it was that generation when Mike came to town. Dave Sanborn came to town, who I had met at... Uh, Stan Kenton band camps when we were 15. And uh, we had kind of similar conceptions sonically, so we started to get known kind of as a horn section. Barry Rogers on trombone, Ronnie Cuber on baritone, all of us coming from different places, but we enjoyed a lot of different styles of music. And uh, well, we didn't have a name. That kind of became like a horn section that got called quite a bit, along with some other guys for a lot of sessions. But I think generally it was our positive outlook and the fact that we love music in all different styles. Was there any particular style that was your favorite? I mean, did you always feel most at home with it being more jazz, uh, you know, flavored? or? Well... You know, what I had also learned was, uh, I suppose if we ask what I am first, uh, you know, I always think of myself first as a jazz musician. But also what I had learned in Philly and what I've learned in the years since, how, and I always mention this in, in clinics and teaching situations, how in the pop world, jazz musicians were so behind everything as producers and as, as musicians. In Philly, 
we had uh, Sigma Sound uh, with the uh, uh, Gamble and Huff. Uh, all these guys were jazz musicians. Uh, all, all the guys that played on all the records, uh, Cameo Parkway, for instance, Chubby Checker. I uh, later found out that all the guys that I had grown up with that I had gone to hear as a youngster, a guy named Buddy Sabbath, wonderful saxophonist, uh, Vince uh, Montana, wonderful vibraphonist, Jimmy Wisner, wonderful pianist. All these guys were behind all the records. They were playing on all the records. Later, of course... Uh, if you watch <clears throat> the story of Motown, which is, happens to be on right now, I just saw it a couple of days ago. Exact same story. Barry Gordy was a jazz pianist. He got all the best jazz musicians to play on all the Motown records because they were readily adaptable. They could read music. They could play anything. Same story in L.A. with all the what they call now the Wrecking Crew. All jazz musicians playing on all those records from the 60s. Hal Blaine and... Uh, you know, so, of course, there's Quincy Jones, all the producers. So it's just a, a larger part of the pop makeup than most people give credit for. Mm, especially on the R&B side. Yeah, and, and, and even in the pop world, you know, because so many of the great players play on all the pop records, too. It was a lot of same guys, and it's all closely connected, especially now with jazz education, music education, and all the schools. All the styles are maybe sometimes even too closely connected where you start losing uh, the flavor because it's, well, now there's so many machines and stuff involved. But uh, I think that was really the nucleus. Uh, we, I was just very happy. I was kind of born in the right place at the right time. I caught the tail end of the uh, classic suit and tie studio system where Bernie Glow, Snooky Young, and Clark Turry, and uh, Bernie... Uh, uh, Ernie Royal were first call guys, and I got to sub sometimes for my friend Marvin Stam, who would also come to New York, uh, you know, showing up. And the other trumpet might be Thad Jones or or, or Mel Lewis be on drums, and uh, Richard Davis on bass. Caught about the last three or four years of that, and then solely. R&B and soul music and rock kind of worked its way. The record business was always a little behind, so to speak, in the jingle business. Uh, and and we didn't. T we had our own way. We let our, our hair was long, and then guys that you'd never figure would start showing up in dashikis and long hair, you know, and always looked funny to me because I had seen them dressed up with suit and ties. But uh, it was interesting to be a part of both worlds, I'll say that. Uh, like I said, I came to New York in 68, where it was uh, still everybody in the studio at the same time, wear a suit and tie, look like a banker, bring your horn. Strings were there, the band was there. Uh, uh, it was uh, That was really some exciting years. So at that time, were you competing with other well-known horn sections for gigs like, say, like Tower of Power Horns or, um, you know, some of those other pop R&B horn sections that were very prevalent at the time? Well, not so much because uh, they were in the West Coast and, and us being on the East Coast. It was really, uh, it, it wasn't that interactive yet, you know, because there was uh, basically, uh, and it was less, Dramatic, I mean, to get called than you would think, because uh, 
there was an answering service called Radio Registry that somebody might have spoken about. And contractors would call Radio Registry, and if they had a date, they'd say, I got, there's a two to five. They'd give the list of the players that were requested, and then they would call the musicians, or they would call me. So I would say 90% of the times, we got called by registry. We knew everyone personally, and they knew everyone. So it wasn't like we were getting called from uh, the rock stars. Occasionally we did. I remember John Lennon called once. He was looking for me and my brother and my wife at the time thought it was a joke and hung up on him. But he eventually found us. But uh, So there wasn't that much interaction between West Coast guys and East Coast guys, or even the guys in Philly or the guys in New York or the guys in Detroit. Uh, eventually, some guy, some of the arrangers from Detroit uh, did come to New York and uh, record the horn section. Uh, usually it was myself and John Fattis, a guy named Paul Reiser, who was in the Motown uh, uh, movie that uh, is just being showed. So we did some stuff for Motown, but it was utilizing New York guys. There wasn't that much competition in that way. Unfortunately, we never quite had a name like I had much of, might have mentioned. Like, uh, so uh, we should have, you know, had some kind of New York. I don't know what we would have called ourselves. We didn't think of it. I guess we were too busy. Uh, and interestingly enough, and there was there was competition between, I suppose, other trumpet players, you know, to get the gigs. But all my best friends. Uh, it's rare in business were trumpet players. So even though we were competing together, we were best friends and, you know, uh, tried to not undercut anyone else. So it was, it was pretty exciting. We, when we were busy, we were doing probably 10 to 15 dates a week every day. Wow. It's wild <laughs> when you look back on it. Never thought it would end. <laughs> so... Did you uh, keep an ear out for other uh, prevalent horn sections at the time, say like Cool and the Gang or um, Tower of Power oh, or yeah. the JBs, what they were doing? Sure. Yeah, well, uh, the JBs we, we knew. We worked with uh, uh, Maceo quite a bit. He was living in New York and, and uh, Fred Wesley, strangely enough. I don't know how I got this gig, I think. Uh, probably through a guy named Emil Charlap, who was a contractor, because I didn't know Fred. And eventually this record came out. He did a jazz record before he became known as Fred Wesley, the Funkmeister. He was a wonderful jazz player, too, so it was all jazz guys on, on that record. I forget what it was called. It was so long ago. It was one of my first record dates. But I was very cognizant of other bands. I love Tower Power and... Uh, and uh, of course, the JBs and uh, all the horn bands. You know, I loved horns, still do, and all the Motown stuff. And just, I was just all the uh, stuff from Stax. You know, that was just a big, and I just loved the sound of it. Yeah, I, I, I love the arrangements they would come up with, especially too. Yeah, it was great. And eventually, you know, uh, I started working quite a bit for Arif Martin. At Atlantic, he was the head producer, and uh, uh, he was nice enough to use me as a contractor and uh, to get the horn section together, and eventually he was nice enough to actually give me some work as a writer when he was too busy to write stuff, because they were so busy churning out track after track 
it's uh, unbelievable to look back on it. And I remember when it was a particularly busy week, Arif gave me a cassette with some tunes he wanted me to arrange for a horn section, some lead sheets and a cassette with no artist on it, but a guitar player playing the melodies. And I asked him, Arif, you know, it would really help me if I knew who the artist was going to be if I'm writing the horn charts. And he kind of looked at the ceiling and said, well, it might be Aretha, could be uh, Carly Simon, could be Bette Midler, it could be Ringo Starr. You know, don't worry about that. We'll figure that out later. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was like, you know, it's just like a, a factory. And uh, it was a thrill. And I got to eventually, you know, right for all those people diana ross george benson it was really great were you, to know. were you often in the studio with with those guys or just your uh horn section only would be in the studio at the time well another good question generally it was just us i would say 80 percent of the time but occasionally you know i mean I, what we did the rolling stones for instance for arif and uh, they were all in the studio. Mick was counting off the tunes. One, two. And my friend Alan Rubin, who was the other trumpet player, stood up and went, three. Uh, so uh, occasionally the artists, particularly at Atlantic, the artists were pretty involved. Bet would always show up. Uh, uh, George Benson, when you worked for him, he was always there. Uh, we were doing a lot of stuff for a guy named... Uh, Tony Camilleri in New Jersey. We did uh, Midnight Train to Georgia. Mostly the same guys, Alan Rubin, me, Fattis, Soloff, and uh, uh, Gladys Knight was at the session. So you remember when the, it's nice when the artist is there and shows up and, and uh, actually really helps to produce the record. But more often than not, it was generally the producers there. Do you recall uh, your the first major pop hit that you played on? Well, I don't know if this tune was a hit, but the record was a hit. We played on uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. And I remember this because this was right at the same time. Probably wasn't the first one, but when it was right when Mike and I got signed to Arista and our first record was coming out and Born to Run had gotten a lot of play, so and we played on 10th Avenue Freeze Out, and I had done a solo on a tune called Meeting Across the River that was getting a lot of play. It was just a, myself, Bruce, and a couple other, was a, not the whole band. So that, that comes to mind. But the first big hit, that's a good question, man. There were so many when we started out. Uh, we were on a lot of disco records, you know, in the early, late 60s. They would just churn them out. You know, it was always a big secret. You know, an engineer would grab you by the throat and say, don't tell anyone. Next week, I love Lucy, disco, don't tell anyone. You know, and then you go to the next studio, listen, don't tell anybody. But next week, theme from Star Wars, don't tell anybody. You know, so people were competing in that way. Uh, we did all play on the... In our little horn section was a guy named Miko Minardo, very fine trom uh, trombonist. And he was really the impetus between uh, the disco version of uh, the theme from Star Wars. That became number one. Had he got a good arranger, uh, Harold Wheeler. You know, uh, we were kind of laughing when he thought of the idea. You know, oh, yeah, sure, you're going to do that. And the next thing you know, that was a number one 
hit whatever year that was. And next thing we know, Miko's not in our horn section anymore. He didn't need the money. Uh, but that, that was one that came to mind. And, uh, you know, we played on uh, what's uh, some early Laura Nero records that did quite well. Um, and she was always in the studio. Uh, I was playing a solo on, for one of her tunes, and she came out of the uh, booth and told me that she wanted my solo to be more orange. <laughs> and somehow I thought of a sunset, and she bought it. I don't know. I played the next solo. Thinking it, it was sounds sunset. like a Miles uh, request. Yeah. Uh, so it was just an exciting time, but a lot of the times... Uh, we didn't even know what got on the radio, you know, because we were so busy. A lot of the sessions were just good arrangers, go in, do the session. They put the singers on later. Maybe sometimes they didn't even know who the singers were going to be. And uh, I, I'm always pleasantly surprised at YouTube because things come up that I have no recollection of doing. I had no idea that I was even on. And there it is, you know, if, the, if they list the personnel. Well, I know. Um, your first record is Brecker Brothers came out, I think, around 75. But around right. that same, same time, though, you also were on oh, some yeah, yeah. P-Funk stuff. And that's near and dear to uh, my heart and also a lot of the viewers. And sure. Actually, that record award up there is for that album. So um, how did you connect with that With group? George. Well, that, according to uh, my memory... This was way back probably in 1970 or 71 when we had the band Dreams, which was the horn section was myself, my brother, and the great trombonist, uh, 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 Barry Rogers, who was both of our mentors and just so fabulous in the Latin field who started the whole sound of two trombones with Eddie Palmieri. He was such an influence and arranged a lot of the stuff in the uh, Latin music world. We played before or after uh, Funkadelic, and they were dressed to the hilt. We had never seen anything like that, uh, and experienced the music was so funky, we just couldn't believe it. And according to my memory and according to my brother's memory, because we talked about this a couple times, happenstance, uh, we played. Uh, right after they played, I think, or right before they played. And we played close enough that George could hear us. And they happened to be, Mike and George Clintons happened to be sitting next to each other on the plane home. So they exchanged numbers, and that was our connection. George started calling us for uh, sessions, particularly that one, and there was uh, maybe Chocolate City, I think, we're on. And we actually, I think, flew us out to L.A. once to play on something out there. But that was a great uh, session with uh, Tear the Roof Off the Sucker and, and, and tunes like that. With Maceo and Fred, I think, were the other horns. A wonderful trumpet player named Joe Shepley and I. Don't think, not sure if Mike was on that or not, but uh, uh, Bernie Worrell wrote a lot of the charts. Just great charts. Handcuffs is my favorite one. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were big influences on my writing when I started to write, particularly Fred and Bernie, the way they they arranged in the cracks, so to speak, and the, and the horns were part of the rhythm section. So, And all the James Brown stuff, uh, big influences on myself when I started to try to, to write. 
Yeah, I was a little surprised initially when I saw they had other guys because I thought, well, they already got, you know, Fred and Maceo and, you know, why do they even need more horn players? But, man, yeah. it's full sound, though. You know? Yeah, well, they had great horn players. Uh, you know, Rick Gardner comes to mind, who I've never really met, but we exchanged emails. They had some great players. So they didn't really need us, but I wasn't going to turn it down. And also on Bootsy's records, too. Yeah, yeah, great. Still happy to occasionally be in touch and, of course, play with Jan Dennis Chambers a lot. I still do that, do a lot of playing with him. Uh, it was a funny story on uh, on uh, that uh, 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 Tear the Roof Off the Sucker, that whole session, all those tunes, handcuffs. They were late getting to the studio. Uh, so I went down to the street level. It was on 46th Street, and I forget the name of the studio. Uh but uh, smoking a cigarette, I smoked occasionally back then. Went down to the street level, and an kind of old beat-up station wagon pulled up, and out came Bootsy, George, seven or eight guys dressed full regalia, tapes under their arms, not even in boxes. All the leader was dragging on the ground. They had driven from Detroit to, to record the horns, and Dennis was in the car. He mentioned it years later. He said, you know... I met you, I saw you standing on the street during that session. He had never mentioned it, you know, he mentioned it like 20 years later to me that that's where we first met. So it was a thrill doing that. That was really an unforgettable session. Yeah, I can only imagine. So you guys got your deal. Um, how excited were you to have your own deal? Well, it was quite exciting uh, that uh, Clive Davis was always in our corner. He signed uh, our band Dreams. Uh, in 1969 or 70 to Columbia Records. So he had two records out on Columbia, the, both of which became kind of, I guess you would say, classic collector items. They didn't really sell that much, but one was called Dreams. The second one was called Imagine My Surprise. So and it was during that time period that I started to write a little uh, for a horn section. On the first Dreams record, everything was jammed up. We were really good at just making up horn parts, which is the way a lot of that stuff, James Brown stuff and with Fred and all those guys, I'm sure that's the way that started. One guy would have a lick and we'd, we never wrote anything down. Was uh, We'd rehearse every day. But at one point I said to myself, you know, I think I'm going to really try and just write s some charts. And uh, I slowly got to work at it and I had nine arrangements for specifically me, Mike and Sanborn. That was my idea because Sanborn had moved to town by then. He had been out in Woodstock and we'd stayed in touch. He was he had been playing with Paul Butterfield Blues Band and like I said, we had started doing all these sessions together. So I wrote nine tunes. This is leading up to how exciting it was. And I was about ready to shop a deal. I had nine arrangements and with Don Grolnick on, on uh, keyboards that I had gone to camp with in that same year and he had played in Dreams, young Will Lee on bass, I had had in mind Harvey Mason on drums, uh, Ralph McDonald on percussion, uh, who am I leaving out? Oh, uh, a friend of mine from Dreams days, Bob Mann on guitar. We were about to do a demo and I got a call from a guy named Steve Backer. And he said, you know, I've, I've, 
word's gotten around about this music you've been rehearsing. We've been rehearsing this stuff. Not only my tunes, but some of Grolnick's tunes, some Steve Kahn tunes. He was in the Nucleus, too. They all live together in the same place. And Backer said, you know, I've heard about this music you've written, and I just signed a production deal with Clive Davis, who is changing Bell Records into Arista Records. And Clive is willing to sign you, sight unseen, but you have to call it the Brecker Brothers. This is the truth. And at first I said, well, man, that's great, but, you know, I've been planning this for years. I've been writing this stuff, and I was supposed to be my solo record, so... I have to really think about it because, first of all, there's three horns in the front line. Sandborn's there, so it'll look funny. If you call it the Brecker Brothers, it'll look like uh, the long-lost cousin or something. But it was such a nice opportunity. I wasn't dumb enough to turn that offer down, you know, even though it was a, in retrospect, it was a great idea to call it the Brecker Brothers, the alliteration. It just, and we had never thought of it. So Clive actually thought of the record brothers before we did it's the truth i remember reading one review where somebody wrote the brothers brecker it just never had occurred to us so not only did he sign us he thought of the name and it was quite exciting when i finally got wrapped myself for okay it's not going to be my solo record but it's a pretty good opportunity now we went in to finish uh, this story there's a there's one more element to it we, we were so uh, practiced as studio musicians, the recording, we were well rehearsed from my blood, sweat, and tears days and from all the sessions I'd done, I knew how to put a record together as a producer, you know, starting with the bass. I just knew how to put all the pieces together. Steve Backer was incredulous because he was working with, used to working with straight jazz guys who just kind of went in and played and left in three hours but this was really a carefully produced album and the nine tunes came out great double track the horns overdubbed the solos had little tricks you know to make it sound good but i got a call from clive and he requested a meeting and and had me up to his office and uh, mike wasn't really that involved in the band yet really so it was always me going up to talk to clive at that time at any rate and Clive said he loved everything I had written, but we need a single. This I was, you know. <laughs> and I duly protested. I said, wait a minute. First, you're calling it the Brecker Brothers, and now I want it to be all my tunes, and uh, we don't have any more. We don't have a single. And basically, in his nice way, uh, but he was good at what he did, he basically said he wasn't going to release it unless we put a single on there. So I trudged back, I'll never forget this, I trudged back to our rehearsal studio, everybody was there, I explained what happened, because we had a rehearsal schedule anyway to rehearse some of the other guys' tunes. I said, man, we gotta think of a single. And the force was really with us that day. I have a cassette of it somewhere, I keep saying I have to, to find. We jammed up a tune in about four hours called Sneaking Up Behind You. Everyone put a little thing in. Everyone co was a co-written tune. Everyone in the band had an idea. We went in and recorded it, and lo and behold, that tune got up to about, I think it was number two on the urban charts. And as a result, uh, 
the record sold hundreds of thousands of albums and the whole thing. And that's what really propelled the Brecker Brothers band was the fact we had this single, probably virtually unknown today, except for people that were there, became a pretty big hit. And the album got up to number in the 50s on the pop charts as a result of Sneaking Up Behind You, which was basically an instrumental, but Will Lee thought of some words, Sneaking Up Behind You, he kind of snuck it in there and uh, was pretty well considering we just jammed it up, which is how we did it, and went in and recorded it. Kind of unique that uh, that's how it all happened. And I, I swear to God, we spent the next five records trying to replicate having a hit. <laughs> Once you have one, it's not bad, you know. Yeah, yeah you stuck up hit. on the charts after that one. It sure did. And uh, we had one other kind of semi-hit called... Uh, East River, at least in Europe, that became kind of a pretty big hit off heavy, heavy metal bebop. But we never quite replicated the success of that one one tune sneaking up behind you. It's a pretty kind of interesting story. It is. And, and so many stories I've heard about Clive Davis are, okay, we need a single. And people go back and, and come with one more track. That was yeah. kind of his, uh, he was known for that. Um, well, that? he knew he knew how to promote this stuff. I mean, they just did a great job. You know, we we went to local record stores signing. He just knew how to do it. He was a genius at what he did. He had not a musician. He was a lawyer, but he had just an ear for things. He knew what was going to sell, and he knew how to package it. Absolutely. That album notably also had some skunk funk on it, yep. which uh, became a live staple. That it did. Still planning after all these years. Who knew? 